What we are doing here today is essential. Amen? This is not an add-on to life. This is not cherry on top. This is not an option like you used to be able to find at Luby's Cafeteria. <laughs> this is essential for life. We believe that what God has established, his word, his son as the source for salvation, his spirit dwelling within us, is the basis for life. There is no life apart from his life. This is essential. Faith is essential. It's not a piece that you consider, perhaps, to have in life. It is the only way to life. Worshiping together is essential. The preaching of God's word is essential. The encouragement of the saints together is essential. I'm grateful for those that are joining us online today. I'm grateful that they can have that experience with us today. There's power there, but there's a different power when you're here in person together. Amen? The world would have us believe that what we are doing is not necessary. It's only a nicety. They would want us to keep our faith out of the culture. They'd want us to keep our faith silent. They'd want us to keep it within these four walls and just be nice. They want to keep our faith out of the public sector. They want to keep faith out of schools. They want to keep faith out of government. They want to keep faith out of entertainment. And so does the enemy of our souls. He wants the exact same thing. The world and our enemy, Satan, says, hey, don't be so radical with your faith. Just be reasonable. And be easy. Balance the Bible with the rest of knowledge, the world would say. Keep a level head. Don't be extreme. Not everything that you read in that book is for today, they would say. It's the same story that the, the serpent told Eve in the garden. When God had clearly given his word about what to do and what not to do, the enemy said, hey, has God really said, are you sure you want to believe that? Maybe you should just kind of keep what you want to do and do that and keep him separate. I mean, don't bring him into all of this. You can't really trust him anyway, was what the serpent said to Eve in the garden. In effect, the serpent said to Eve, hey, you need to step out of your echo chamber because you're just, you're just living inside your own echo chamber. You know, there's a lot more thought out there, the serpent would say. Why don't you listen to what other people have to say? Why don't you take in what the rest of the news is? Why don't you just listen to me, the serpent would say. It's a popular term, Dave. You heard that before, echo chamber? People who normally use it in reference to um, if you have maybe had too tight a circle, they would say, of information, where you're in a, a small room and what you hear is just your own voice and a small number of voices just reverberating around. It's echoing in a chamber. And the world uses that today against Christians as you need to expand your thinking, bro. You need to get outside your little box. You need to think bigger. You need to get outside your echo chamber. The world would say of us today that we live inside our echo chamber and that we're bigots, that we're full of hate, that we're cruel, that we need to just expand our thinking. 
And sadly, just like Adam and Eve, many believers today are falling for that intimidation from the world. Instead of standing for faith and conviction and truth, many Christians end up catering, cratering, and becoming like the world, accepting sin, diminishing the holiness of God, robbing the cross of its power, lessening the need for salvation. And on the other side, it comes out with a gospel that sounds like this. Just love one another. That's all you really need to do. It started in the garden with an insinuation and an intimidation that said, get out of your echo chamber. I don't know about you. I like my echo chamber. I like it tight. I like it small. In fact, I'm doing my best to try to limit down the number of voices I listen to. I have to turn off the Facebook at times. I got to set aside the social media at times. I got I to gotta step away from the computer. I can't even tell you the last time I've watched a news broadcast on TV. And I don't find myself any more ignorant as a result. I find myself with more hope, more promise, and more faith than ever. I don't need to hear today what the world has to say about the Bible and mix with what I know about the Bible and somehow on the other side come out with what I want to believe out of it. I don't need to come up with what my version of faith is. I need to listen to what God says faith is and stick to that completely. I need one voice directing my life. I want one voice inside the echo chamber. I'm trying to narrow it down so tight that I don't even hear my own self anymore in it. I want to hear God and God alone in that, in that box. Jesus said, John 5, 19, I only do what I see the Father do. That's a pretty tight echo chamber. Jesus said, I only say what the Father tells me to say, John 12, 49. And Paul said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. you got to narrow down your echo chamber if you want to know that. Heather and I raised our kids in an echo chamber. We narrowed down the field of voices. We limited the input I wasn't looking to serve them a smorgasbord of what the world offers and what we offered and see if they wanted to choose maybe, hopefully, what we were doing. We taught them truth. We modeled truth. We lived out truth. We prayed for the day their eyes would be open to that truth and do more than just do what we did, but own what we owned. And praise God, they did. They owned it. God spoke to them. They watched it. They saw it. And they chose it. That's what we're called to do as Christian parents. I don't need to send them out into the world as children hoping they can figure it all out. They're children. They can't. They need direction. They need modeling. They need correction. They need a church. They need a student ministry. They need all the voices they can get that will reinforce what God has said in his word. That's what we need. Tighten the echo chamber. Jesus didn't say, I'm one of many options. Try me. If you like me, let's give it a go. He said, there is one way to the Father through me. That's pretty tight. It's limited. That's a chamber you want to get into and hear over and over and over again. But today, we're living in the midst of a generation that for some time has elevated man over God and education over faith. 2 Timothy 4.3, the Apostle Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, told us about days like this. It says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, 
because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. When you start with your own personal desires and what you want, you'll go find whatever you want that'll reinforce what, reinforce what you feel. That is not what we are about as believers. We start with scripture. We start with faith. We start with doctrine, and then we build our life on that. If you don't, your ears are going to itch, according to this passage. You're going to always be wondering, what else is out there? I need something else. This is not enough for me. No, you bring your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and you fall down on your face, and you choose to follow him with your life. Do you know, you and I were never called to look at all of what the scripture offers and say, hmm, I wonder what about that I will choose. Hmm, I wonder what about that I might do. No, here's how the Bible presents faith. You start from the place of recognizing you are a desperate sinner. You had no hope in this world. You have been born in sin, you've chosen to sin, and apart from any hope, you're destined for hell. That's where you start. And then you see the beauty of what Jesus came to do and did and was. And then you bring your life to him flat out before him and say, Jesus, I need a savior. And then you start living and then you fit faith into the rest of it. And you start from that place. If you come at any other way, you'll put yourself as the judge over all things. You'll put yourself as the one who wants to try to figure out all of life. You'll put yourself in the place that Eve fell into. People today in the world think they're smarter than Scripture. People today think they have to weigh out the options. People today think they're greater than God. People today, they dismiss the eternal and they'll choose only what they can fit into their pea-sized brain or their massive set of feelings that they have. And we are seeing the devastating results of that in our world today. That's what we're watching. That's what we're a part of. Let me just tell you some of the ways that the world has chosen to do that. In education today, God has been removed from being the creator of life. For some time now, the standard teaching has been that we evolved, that there was no God, that man is on his own, that there was no beginning, that there is no end, that there is no design, there's only us, and that's all. We are just expendable life forms, and we get to decide what we think is best. There's no moral authority, no boundaries. The minute you remove God as creator, you remove all standards. You remove all authority. You become what you choose to be, and that is what you and I have grown up in. That's what you and I are in the midst of in a culture that has said no to God being creator. We live in a culture today that has removed prayer and dependence upon God. God has been removed as a source of hope. The culture says, if you're going to trust in anything today, trust your logic, trust your popularity, trust your money, and trust your feelings. That's what the world says. And they define life then by that. They remove any dependence upon God that says, I trust you, God. They remove any hope of turning to a God when their darkest days. In counseling today, God has even been removed. In most counseling that's not Christian or not biblical, there's no longer this idea that God is the reconciler, that he restores and can bring people back together again, that he can bring us back to him again. Counseling today says, lean on your feelings, lean into your bitterness, lean into your hurt, lean into your medication, lean into yourself. 
There's no dependence upon God as reconciler, no dependence upon God for accountability for your actions, and no restoration and transformation. In marriage today, God has been removed as the authority and the designer. They say, God can't define gender. You get to choose. They say there's endless options for gender. They say marriage is not just for a man and a woman. It's the same lie from the beginning. Has God really said, do you really have to keep it that way? Is that really what you feel? Is that really what you want to do? It's the same lie, but dressed up in today's clothing. Sexual promiscuity celebrated today. Marriage is no longer a covenant. It's a disposable contract. But let me assure you that there is a distinct design for men. Men, you were meant to be strong. You were meant to lead. You were meant to sacrifice. You were meant to step up. You were meant to be a protector. You're meant to be a provider. Don't let any voice tell you that is not true. You are meant to find your dependence upon God. You are meant to be an example to others. Do not fall for the lie of the culture. God has a distinct design for women as well. Ladies, you are meant to be a model of trust, of dependence, that believes and follows God even when the circumstances are challenging. What a picture, what a privilege, and what a power you have. God has a picture and a purpose for you. Do not fall for the world's deception that you only have worth in the number of social media likes, that you only have worth if you fit a certain physical standard. You only have worth in the comparison of you with other women. God has a design for you. Don't listen to any other. Marriage is meant to be the most single powerful picture of salvation on the planet. It's true. Husbands, you and I represent Jesus Christ laying down his life. Wives, you represent a church who has received faith and gives admiration just like the church does. And when a husband and wife understand their purpose and are walking in that design, it's the most potent and powerful picture of salvation on the planet. It's in that environment that children grow up and find faith and find hope and find peace. The culture has also removed God from being the creator of life. The world would say we're just evolving life forms. The world has dismissed the truth that God has uniquely fashioned a woman's body to be the place where a baby is conceived and there is alive and forms and grows there. Instead of humbly receiving this truth, instead of valuing the holy design that God has given women, instead of valuing life, as from God, instead of seeing husbands and wives as being heirs together of the grace of life, the New Testament says, the world has elevated the feelings of a woman's rights above all life. And in many states today, in our own United States, Abortion up to the time of birth is allowable. This is a crime against God. This is a great sin in our nation today. Taking a life in the womb is a sin. 
and elevating my preference and pleasure over someone else's life is a sin. The world has also removed God from being the restorer of the soul. Churches today have gone soft in their preaching. Churches today have walked away from the fact that we are born desperately wicked and in sin. Churches today have neglected the fact that there is only one way to God, and that is through repentance, change in our life, and faith in Jesus Christ. Churches have grown soft today on the demand for life change. That if you come to Christ, there should be something different about you. That repentance actually means life change. Churches are denying the fact that there's a pattern of righteousness and holiness and truth that we are called to walk in. The cry today from most churches is just love one another. Can't we all just get along? I'm all for Jesus' words to love, but I'm also all for Jesus' words that tells me to walk in righteousness and that when I do, I will be persecuted for my faith. If you're using as your measure the number of likes and popularity you have in the culture and no one against you, you are missing the point of the gospel. Churches have turned today to social justice instead of personal righteousness. Churches today are ignoring the call for transformation personally, in marriages, in parenting, the call for students, the call for children, and entire communities to repent and believe. And culture has also removed God from being sovereign over all of life. They would say, he can't really be trusted. He really isn't going to hold you accountable. There was no beginning. There is no end. This is the way it's always going to be. And in so doing, they miss one essential truth. Jesus is going to return to this earth, and there's going to be a day of final judgment. If you can somehow come up with a way of life and an education and a culture that denies that, then it's really just, hey, Let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry and do whatever we want because there is no coming judgment. But I have to assure you of the truth from God's word. Jesus is returning. He will catch his bride away. He will reign on the earth for a thousand years and then he's gonna come back and there will be a final judgment in that moment. And so now we get to our message today. And it's called... The final judgment. We are into a series called Signs. And we've been looking at the end times. And the Bible has a whole lot more to say about these end times than just in the book of Revelation. Most people associate end times with Revelation. Yes, the book of Revelation does talk about the end times. But so do many, many, many other books in the Bible. So did many, many other people in Scripture. This idea of final judgment and Jesus returning to that place where he sits on a throne. It was central in the Old Testament. It was central to Jesus' own message, and it was central in the New Testament. Let's walk through our timeline we've looked at over the last several weeks to put our place today where we're going to be. We started our series back with the rapture of the church. There's coming a day when Jesus will call his bride, that is the church, that is the body of believers around the world that put their faith in him, true believers. He will rapture them and remove them from the presence on the planet. When he does, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the form of us being in his spirit, being in us, will be removed. And when that occurs, it will launch the entire planet into a time of tribulation. 
of chaos like has not been seen. A world ruler will rise at that time to bring peace. I'm not telling you a comic book story. I'm telling you the truth of God's word. Amen? I know that may at times be one of those things that just seems so fairy tale-ish, but let me remind you that we build our faith on the scripture, not on fairy tales. This is real. He will return. He will take us away. Chaos will ensue on the earth. A world leader will rise at that time, will come to be known as what the scripture calls him, the Antichrist. He will eventually seat himself on the throne in a temple built in Jerusalem, and he will assert himself as God. He will demand that all worship him, and many on the planet will. But also during that time, the Bible says 144,000 Jews will become super evangelists, and they will share the gospel in greater clarity than has ever been shared before. Many will come to faith, but many, most, will be arrested, persecuted, and beheaded for their faith during that time. It will be a difficult time to be a believer. At the end of that seven-year period, Jesus will return to planet Earth, and he will bring an end to all war, and he will reign on the Earth. He will be the judge. He will reign, the Bible says, for a thousand years. And during that thousand-year period, Satan will be bound. Can you imagine a thousand years without the evil influence of Satan upon the earth? That's what that time will be like. A thousand years in which people are marrying and having children, and they're growing up on the earth with Jesus reigning on the earth. He's the one who's king. He's the one they recognize. People worshiping Jesus on earth. People acting under the jurisdiction and rule and authority of Jesus on earth. This will happen for a thousand years. Now, there are a lot of events in this timeline that we are not covering in this entire series. There's only two more weeks left in this series after today. So I, I recognize there's a lot of things I have not covered. We could have been here a long time if we had covered every event in it. We're not. But today, I want us to zero in on the time frame that follows the thousand years. A time of final judgment. Now, hear me clearly. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, when Jesus comes for his bride, you will be raptured to heaven to be with him. You will not be judged for your sins at that time because your sins were paid for on the cross. There's not a movie screen waiting for you in heaven to replay every event of your life and you have to sit there in embarrassment of your life because of your sins. They were paid for on the cross, removed at the cross, and the day you believed, washed and removed from you. Not for you to have to bear again at all. That's good news, amen? Sadly, most people don't even live with that reality in their life. They carry their old sins around like a big old backpack and just weighed down. So when Jesus sets up this moment of final judgment, it's for a very specific group. It's not for those who put their faith in Jesus. It is for every soul from the beginning to the end who did not. Mm, Let's jump into our passage here. We are in Revelation chapter 20. If you'll turn your Bibles with me there. We've got a few verses we're going to look at. You can follow me on screen. If you want to take pictures of the screen, that is totally fine. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. We're going to see this time of judgment that awaits. And I'll go ahead and tell you where I'm driving this morning. Where I'm headed is this, the reality of this judgment should bring every one of us, unbeliever and believer, to a moment of decision today. 
Let's talk about those decisions as we go through our passage here today. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 is where we begin. God has been showing John, who is on an island named Patmos. It's a prison island. He's there because of his faith. And while he's there, God's speaking to him and showing him things about the future. And in chapter 20, it begins with these words in verse 11. John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. That's a relatively short set of words there, the first part of 11. But the magnitude is beyond anything of what you and I can hardly comprehend. John says it's a a great white throne. It's massive in size and scale. It's a throne, so it's a place of authority. It's white, which means it's a symbol of purity and holiness and righteousness. And there's one setting on it, John says. It's Jesus himself. And this this moment right here that John sees, it's that inconvenient truth that man wants to set aside today. No, 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 no. There's not any of that coming. You know, we just evolved anyway. There wasn't a God back there, so there can't be a God over here. And there's not coming a day of judgment. And we're not really held accountable. And it's that inconvenient truth man wants to set aside. It's that uncomfortable reality that no one wants to talk about. It's that long-term theme that's been in Scripture. This isn't the first time it's ever showed up. David in the Old Testament wrote in Psalm 9, he said, But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the people in uprightness. Daniel talked about it as well in the Old Testament. Daniel had a a vision. He said in Daniel 7, verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a, a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth and before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. This isn't the first time it was listed in scripture. The second part of verse 11 says this. That from this one who's seated there, it says, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. John's describing this moment that he can hardly take in. He somehow is able to pull out, and on a massive scale, he sees everything. I don't mean just on planet earth, but he is he zoomed way out. In fact, John says, I look, and earth is not even there anymore. The heavens as we know them, the sky, it's not even there anymore. They have fled away. It's the end. They've been burned up. They've vanished. He said, and the only thing I see is this one who's on a throne. And there's such brilliance and holiness that the earth and the heavens have all rushed away. It's recorded for us in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away. But Jesus said, my words will by no means pass away. The book of Hebrews says, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens and the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. Have you ever had one of those favorite shirts that you just wear all the time? And you love it, you know, and it feels good and it's comfortable and you feel like you look good in it, you know, and you're out, you're wearing this shirt, and before you know it, some years have gone by. And your wife says to you, guys, hey, you sure you want to keep wearing that thing? <laughs> well, it's my favorite shirt. Yeah, but you know, it's got some holes in the side and it smells kind of funny and, uh, you know, it's kind of out of style. And you have to do that thing, guys, where you take that shirt, 
You fold it up and you put it away. You don't wear that shirt anymore. You've used it. It's, it's served its purpose. It's done. It's time to get a new one. The book of Hebrews says there's coming a day where God will take the earth and the heavens and say, you know, that's enough. It's worn. It was tainted by sin the day man sinned in the beginning. It hasn't been the same since. In fact, the earth groans today, the book of Romans says, awaiting for the glorious return of the sons of liberty, us. And there'll be a day that God will take all that we know of as earth and space and sky and fold it up and say, that's enough of that. And this is that moment where all that remains is Jesus on a throne, Jesus in a place to judge. And in front of him are gathered every one who has ever lived and not believed and followed Jesus. Verse 12, John says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. I can't imagine that number. I can't imagine what that looks like. But John says, when I looked, they were all there. Those that live small lives, those who tried to stay out of the limelight, those who maybe were insignificant, and those who were great, those who were powerful, those who were popular, those who were wealthy, they're all standing there. And their smallness and their greatness has nothing to do with it. It's a fact that they were all born into sin, fallen short of the glory of God, and refused to bow their knee to Jesus Christ and to walk in faith. It's the saints of the Old Testament who, knowing there was a sacrifice, even though they didn't call him Jesus yet, still said, no thank you. And here they all are. You know you really only have two options regarding your sin. Once you admit that you're a sinner and that you've blown it miserably, you either say, Jesus, I need you. I need you because you, you love me and you paid for my sin. I need to have them off of me. That's one way. Or you say, no thank you. I don't want that. I'll go it on my own. I'll figure it out. I'll go my way. I'll do my thing. I don't need you, God. And here, at this judgment, are all of those in that second category. It says in the second part of verse 12, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Books. There's books here. The first part of the verse said there were books that were opened. These books are God's record of every person and everything that they have done. It's every word. It's every thought. It's every action. All recorded in these books. And they are opened here, it says. The Bible had talked about it plenty before. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. Ecclesiastes says, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Jesus said, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. These are those who would not accept the payment of Jesus for their sin, decided to go it alone, deal with it on their own, and here they are standing before God, standing before the righteous judge, Jesus himself, having to answer now for every idle word, you know, the ones you really thought you didn't mean, that you spoke when no one was listening or few people were listening, every thought, every attitude, every action, those books are opened 
And for the unbelievers, it will be a painfully awkward moment because this is where the movie screen plays. This is the recording. This is what's read. This is what's displayed. You chose to go it alone. You chose to take it on yourself. You didn't need God. Well, here you are standing before his son as judge, giving an account for everything you ever did. Books. But he also says there's another book opened. There's books, then there's a book, a singular book. And this book, he tells us what it is. It's the book of life. It's the book that has names recorded in it. It's the book that says, here are those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Here are those who truly follow me as evidence of their faith. Here are those who believe. In this moment, the books are opened and the book is opened. And there will be some in that day, even among the unbelievers, who will still rail against God and say, that's not fair. That's the rally cry of today, you know. That's my fair, or that's not fair. I want my rights. You hurt me. That's the rallying cry of the world today. Matthew 25 describes this moment where there are some who say, that's not fair. In Matthew 25, I'm going to start in verse 40. The king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch you did to the least of these, my brethren did it to me. Verse 41. Then he will also say to those of the left hand, that's this judgment time right here, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The last part of verse 12 says, And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Can you imagine? You, you cast off Jesus as the option. You cast off Jesus as the only way to life. You cast off Jesus as your salvation, and you said, I'll do this on my own. I don't need him. And all of a sudden, in this moment, all that you trusted in is read and displayed, and you're judged for it. This is where it will come to pass that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In that day, he'll recognize there is a God. This judgment time is for every person that said, I will choose what I want. I will hear all the voices that the world offers and decide for myself. I will not be told what to do. I will not yield. I'll see what's popular. I'll see what the crowd does. I'll follow it. I'll follow my feelings. And here in this moment, they're stunned to find out there is a God. He has a son, and he holds man accountable. Verse 13, it says that the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. Now, this is the redeeming part of this passage. This is the part I can smile about because the rest of it is so heavy and hard. But this part right here tells me that there's coming at this point a time when death will face death. I'm glad for that. 
Death is terrible. Death robs us of a loved one. Death takes someone long before we thought it was time for them to go. Death is that decay that's in effect on the planet today. Death is what's at work in every one of our bodies right now. That, that thing that makes you get up this morning and you feel a little bit more sore and tired than you did yesterday. That part of the, that makes you weak. That part of us that gets sick. That part of us that brings us to an end. Death. That separation. That one that causes us to grieve. That one that hurts. On this day, it's the end of him. I'm glad for that. I look forward to the day when death dies. On this occasion here, it says that the sea gives up the dead. Everyone who were in it, people die at sea, you know. And here, their bodies that were there, unbelievers, because the believers' bodies were raptured, the unbelievers' bodies who were in the sea, all those who were in the grave, all those who've been waiting, here they are all brought up, delivered up, and death is done. He's finished. And what you're left with, standing before Jesus, is this unusual group an unusual group of people that have never all stood together before. The spirit of every dead person who did not trust in Christ is all of a sudden reunited with their body. And the, the dead unbelievers from every generation from beginning to end are all standing together. The small and the great, the wicked, the vile, the angry, the cruel, the murderers, the haters, they're all standing here in this vast assembly of wickedness. John Phillips writes about this and he says, there's a terrible fellowship here. The dead, small and great, stand before God. Dead souls are united to dead bodies in a fellowship of horror and despair. Those who lived small lives of pettiness and selfishness will be there. Those who live lavish, selfish, loud, raucous lives of debauchery and sin will be there. The powerful who abuse privilege, cause pain, hated, led others astray. The powerful, the puny, the rich, the poor, the known, the unknown will all be there. This is the first time they have ever all stood together. And it is the last time they will all stand together. Because this passage tells us in the next part of the verse, and they were judged each one according to his works. They denied forgiveness. They chose to be judged by their own merits. They chose to go alone, do their own thing. They chose to go ahead and let guilt be what they put their head on their pillow with every night. They chose to let their own mind make the decision instead of following Christ with their life. They chose to try to find ways to cover their misery they chose to find ways to cover their sin. And here they are standing before Jesus, verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Death dies here. But perhaps the saddest verse is what's next. Verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. All those standing here have that as their experience. They would not believe. They refused. In this life, they chose not to. They saw friends who did. They heard messages. They drove by churches. They saw Christians as their neighbors. And here they said, not for me. And here they were cast into the lake of fire. 
those reading this at the time would have understood clearly that this was a picture of the area outside the walls of Jerusalem where a fire burned continually where trash was taken where the bodies of dead animals were taken where those who were prisoners who died their bodies were taken criminals when they died their bodies were taken there and there outside the walls burned a continual fire and here John says, those who had not trusted, who burned with resentment against God, are now cast into this lake of fire. Now, this is quite a sobering message. This isn't one of those that at the end we're all like, yeah! This is one of those that you and I come to today are like, whoa. Whoa. This is one of those moments that you and I have to all ask ourselves some questions because the reality of that coming judgment should bring us to a place of decision no matter who you are. It should be stirring something within you right now. In fact, most likely God is speaking to you right now. If you're an unbeliever here in the room today, he's speaking to you. If you're a believer, he's speaking to you. And whichever one you are, it still demands a decision. If you're an unbeliever, this is your day. That judgment coming says, this is your day. This is your time. Don't wait. It's real. Don't listen to what the world says about it. Listen to what the truth of God's word says about it. If you're a believer and you say, but I'm not going to have to experience that. It's correct. You will not be judged for every sin. You will not be cast into the lake of fire. But our lives today must be considered because we have people all around us who may be there. It is for this moment that the book of Hebrews would write this. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy of those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If you're an unbeliever today, Please hear me with as much compassion as I can express, with as much urgency as I can express. You must receive this grace. Do not fall for the lie of the world that you can live how you want, whatever you want, whenever you want. There is a king who created us. There is a savior who died for us to free you from all that you're carrying right now. But he wants to free you from that day of judgment. It begins with a prayer that sounds something like this for you. Oh God, I have sinned. I've tried to go my own way and it has not worked. I'm tired of it. I'm done with it. I can't do it anymore. I will receive your salvation that frees me because you paid for my sin. And because you love me, I'll live for you. If that's a prayer you're praying this morning, then God will birth new life into you. And by faith, you will be born again.
He'll create new passion within you to live for him. He'll create new desire to serve him. And he will lift the weight of your guilt. Now, if you're a believer today, thank God that you've been set free from your sin. And then ask God, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to live my life with such clarity that the people around me see you in me? Believers, this is our time to wake up. This is our time to be shaken. This is not our time to head for the hills, run inside, cover over our head with the, with the blanket and say, Ooh. this is our time to stand up bold because of what we've been given. This is our time to stand strong because of truth that we have and boldly declare it. If there's stuff in your life that doesn't match that message, end it. Stop it. This time is too short. This time is too serious. The judgment is too real. Don't let your family go into that. Wake up. Be serious about this life we have in Christ. Live for him completely. Lay aside that sin that easily besets you. Get focused. Don't treat faith as an add-on to life. Let faith be the basis of your life. Don't think this is just a simple add-on to make your life feel pretty during the week. This is the basic. This is the foundation. This is how we live our lives based on Jesus Christ and faith and being the church together. Amen. Amen. That judgment demands a decision today for every one of us. Would you stand together this morning? I'm going to pray. And I'd want you to respond in your heart to what God is saying to you. Would you bow your heads with me? If you're not a believer this morning, this is your moment. This is your moment to pray and say, God, forgive me. I've lived on my own. I've denied you. But today, that all changes. I receive you. I'll follow you. I'll walk in your ways. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for removing my guilt. If you're a believer, maybe this morning is a wake-up call for you. Maybe you're like many here at Vertical who have taken the step to make their faith public and be baptized to say, I've got to make this thing real. We've been baptizing folks here for weeks. God has blessed. Maybe God's put that on your heart. And it's time for you to make that decision. It's time for you to make it public. It's time to make a fresh start. It's time to put it on the line. It's time to go public with your faith. Or maybe as a believer, you've been playing around too long. You've been sleeping. You've been lazy. You've treated this whole thing like faith with some cherry on top, dessert on the side, instead of the crux of what life is all about. And today, he's speaking to you. You hear him. Your heart's just pounding in your chest right now. You know it. He's calling you to be done with some sin that you've been playing with. He's calling you out of what you've been spending way too much time on. He's calling you out of wrong priorities. He's calling you out of a, a life of chaos. He's calling you to full surrender to him today. If that's the case, you tell him that. God, I'm sorry. I needed a wake-up call, and this is it. This is my moment. I'm coming back, Father. I'm here. Use me. Speak through me. I'm changing everything for you. Father, this morning, I am so grateful for times when you speak truth to us. Inconvenient, uncomfortable truth. But that's what it took to wake us up. That's what it took to call us out of our grave. That's what it took to redeem us. So I thank you for those this morning who are putting faith in you for the first time. 
I thank you for new life. I thank you that you call people out of the grave still. I thank you for those who have made a decision this morning in their heart already to make their faith public, to make it real, take a stand and be baptized. I thank you for the courage that you're giving them already for that. And I thank you for believers that are here who have said, this world has lost its ever-loving mind. And I am bringing my mind back to you, Jesus. I surrender to you. I don't want to be caught up in the mess, the chaos. I need peace. I need direction. And you alone are that. So I come to you this morning. I come laying it all down. I come laying aside sin, cutting it out, dying to self, reprioritizing my life all around you. So I thank you, Father, for what you're doing here in all of us today. I thank you that there are moments of decision. I thank you that you give peace when we do. Out of that peace, we're going to worship you now, Father, because you're good. You're very good. You're good when we haven't been. And we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.